Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Fitness Philadelphia podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Herding, and I have the absolute pleasure of talking to Philadelphia's best sports medicine physicians, physical therapists, strength coaches, and personal trainers. These movement professionals are the leaders driving the healthcare revolution in the Philadelphia region. During each episode, we gain valuable insight into how these individuals are changing the game. Please stop by precisionperformancept.com backslash fitness with a PH Philadelphia to subscribe and learn more. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Rise Education Platform. RISE stands for Rehab Integrated into Sports Education. We offer solutions for business owners who want to bring more athletes into their practice, as well as clinicians to help them better understand how to integrate sports performance metrics into the rehab setting. Our 12-week master's class for clinicians offers solutions for clinicians to begin to implement these ideas right away. And our business mentorship helps business owners figure out the solutions that best suit their business's needs. Visit sportsrehabeducation.com for more information. Welcome back. And today we have a very special guest, someone that I'm really excited to have on the podcast, who's been a staple in the Philadelphia community strength and community for, for years and years and years. Mr. Corey Watts. How are you, Corey? Good, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you for taking the time on your busy schedule to hop on. Conditioning at Penn, which is mm-hmm. awesome. Um, been over the weight room. It's a, it's a great weight room. They have, you're now leading a great community of athletes, which is, it's been very fun to see kind of the progress that you've made in this area and the communities that you've built. Can you kind of tell us, give us your origins, what got you into the field, kind of your athletic history, how you got started in the field of strength and conditioning and what brought you into this great leadership position that you're in now? Of course, not the first time people have heard this story. Into sports my whole life, uh, interested in how can I get better at sports was certainly the the one of the least gifted athletes uh, growing up. So I had to work at it. Uh, strength training, physical fitness uh, became something that I was introduced to. Uh, honestly, I, it was probably somewhere in high school. Uh, just knew that it could be a tool to enhance my ability, especially in football and basketball. So started strength training. Uh, fell in love with that, was probably the strongest on my football team, became one of the better players on my football team, almost solely because of the work that I did outside of the field. And then as I was looking into to playing football in college, I realized that there was a major called exercise science, clinical exercise science. Uh, I had no idea it, was, it existed, but it just intrigued me. I loved how learning how the body worked and learning how, again, you can improve performance uh, by improving how the body moved, et cetera. So Uh, I went down that path, went to Ithaca College, majored in clinical exercise science, played football there. By the end of my time there, did uh, several internships, specifically with Cornell University and their strength and conditioning program. And then right after, as I was graduating my senior year, went with the Buffalo Bills for three months, did an internship with them during their off-season training, and then immediately went to University of Maryland uh, for grad school in kinesiology. So in two years there, just volunteered to work with their strength and conditioning department for two years. So was around the football team a lot, but also they, they just gave me teams. I think it was at a point back then where it didn't matter if you were certified or not, they were just looking for help. So I, I worked with like swimming and uh, tennis and I, I literally programmed for those division one teams all by myself and coached them all by myself. And as I was you know, still in grad school. So uh, that was a great experience. 
uh, graduated with a degree in kinesiology. And, and what I learned there was definitely more in the the application uh, in the strength and conditioning realm, not so much in the classroom. We focused a lot on genetics and how genetics play an impact on uh, strength training. And as I graduated, I was looking into, all right, what's my next step? And, I, and I've had two paths that I was going to go down. Uh, one, if I did get a job, uh, was whatever job would, would take me on. So I was applying for countless jobs in any area. I'm from upstate New York. I was down in Maryland, uh, so I was applying for jobs anywhere, one of them being Haverford College. Uh, I was lucky enough to get an interview there. Uh, I was lucky enough to be offered the job as fitness center director, strength and conditioning coach, uh, head strength and conditioning coach, the only strength and conditioning coach there at 24 years old. Never heard of the college, let alone never heard of the mainline uh, area there. If I didn't get that offer, I was going to go to PT school. I was going to go to uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I was going down that road looking to see where I could live in, in that uh, re research triangle area. That's where I went. Got a job, went to Haverford, was blown away just by the people there. Ended up spending 12 years at Haverford College in that role. Uh, I grew immensely during my time there. Uh, it was a one-man shop for the first 10 or so years. And then towards the end, I was very lucky to, to start working with Nat Ballenberg, who's now in Major League Baseball kind of assuming a variety of roles, but uh, was a pitching coach, baseball player and pitching coach there, but also had a vested interest in strength and conditioning. But just the staff there, the kids there were uh, out of this world in terms of uh, learning and uh, gratitude and collaboration. I learned so much there. And then towards uh, the end of that 12-year period, I, I was lucky enough to make a few connections here at Penn, went through a four-month interview process here, uh, lucky enough to to be offered the job as the director of strength and conditioning, as you said, and then over three months later or three years later now, uh, here I am. But it still feels like, you know, I'm in my first month. Uh, you know, that two years or so of COVID was obviously a major pause button, uh, so I haven't mm -hmm. felt like I've gone through a true year yet. Uh, we've had some st staff turnover for a variety of reasons, so finally establishing some consistency here is what I'm looking forward to, and that's where I am. Yeah. And, and what I've really admired about you, Corey, is now it seems that you just mentioned the COVID stuff, but I'd like to take it all the way back into the, the, the challenges that you've been able to overcome as a 24-year-old strength and conditioning coach, like head strength and conditioning coach at a small school. And how can you talk about how you kind of were able to put your systems in place, craft that culture at a Division three school where community is, is the, really the focus? I learned a lot that first, let's say five years, I had a football-centric background in terms of mindset. I think most strength and conditioning coaches do uh, just because of the culture uh, that it, at least it was 15, 20 years ago. I've been in the field now 15 years. So getting individuals to, quote unquote, do a program or do what you say was very external motivation driven. And I learned quickly uh, through those first five or so years that you know, that's not sustainable. Uh, that's not sustainable, not only at Haverford College, but in most places. I learned about relationships. I know that's cliche, but I learned how to, to, to get to know people. I learned a lot about perspective, and I'm continuing to learn about that now. I learned a lot about internal motivation, how to, to cultivate that. I learned about autonomy being such a huge part in giving athletes ownership. Um, 
So I, I certainly learn more from the athletes and from the administration and, and the environment than, than vice versa. And I, I carry that into today where is I want to take a step back. I just want to create an environment and an experience that cultivates buy-in, uh, that cultivates learning, uh, and everything else will kind of take care of itself, I, I firmly believe. Yeah, and I, I think that's true because how many athletes did you have as a singular strength coach at Haverford? Uh, it was well over 500. Uh, we had 23 teams. Some of them didn't fully train with us. So it was, I think, 18 or so teams, so at least 500 or so. Right. So that's a, that's a huge, like coming into a situation like that as a 24-year-old, you're looking at that and it could be overwhelming. Right. But what I found you're very good at and what you just kind of described is taking a step back, looking at the macro level and how can I create this autonomy and make for their own success, but provide them with the framework to be able to achieve that. And I think framework is an important word. Uh, it's about creating a system. The athletes have to be aware of, all right, what's coming up? What, where are we going with this? Uh, where do I have the ability to, to make choices? Um, and, and just making it, I don't want to say so they don't have to think too much, but in a way that they can have fun, they can, they can understand the experience and they can be a part of that experience. So it's not my program. It's, it's our and mostly their program. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting. You had mentioned it took you about five years to really find that sweet spot. Like, these things take time. Like you can't expect as a young strength coach coming in to come in and say, oh, this is going to be working like clockwork the first or, first or second year, right? It's going to take a little bit to figure out those systems for long-term success. The, the longer you're in this, the more you know you, you don't know uh, as much. And I think the, the beauty of my situation there at Haverford was it was a Division three school. So what that means is in the off-season, everything is voluntary. You, you can't force athletes to do anything. You can't also report anything to, to their coaches. And it's far enough along now where I'm okay saying this, but I, I was doing the opposite. I, w- I was holding people accountable to, to being in there. I was tracking them down if they wouldn't come in for a morning run or a lift or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And at some point during that time, my, my athletic director sat me down and no, it's not that she knew the specifics. She didn't know I did those one-off things, but she did know that she was getting some feedback that the kids felt the pressure to do certain things. And I knew the kids wanted to do it, but there was these times where they couldn't come for whatever reason, school, life, that happens. We all know that. And they would feel this immense pressure, this immense guilt uh, because they liked me and they wanted to please me, but they also wanted to please their coaches and their teammates and all this. And they feel this guilt because I would hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. She sat me down because she would hear this feedback and she, she not only, number one, she reiterated what the, the NCAA regulations were, but number two is, yeah. you know, if let's get them to make the decision. Let's get them to make this sustainable. They have to have the choice, as I've, I've been saying. So where she didn't tell me like how to do that, but then I started talking, talked to, to Ken Clark a lot about uh the autonomy piece, the self-determination theory, Nick Winkleman at the time was doing a lot of work with that. And I started going down the path of giving them choice and then going back to my that framework concept of how can we create a process around autonomy is we started to do that. We started to to give them choice. They, they liked being analytical. So we kind of worked in some uh, data and some autonomy with the program and it really flourished. They started asking more questions and they started buying in. And I, and the, the other big thing about that was it reduced pressure on me 
because I would get so anxious that they wouldn't be in. And you know, once I took a step back and gained more perspective, then it was just uh, a big load off of my shoulders uh, too, from an anxiety standpoint. Yeah. And I think that comes to like, the, even the type of school you're at, like the students that have are generally high achievers who want to right. please. Right. And you are someone that was coming from a place of just general caring of like, I want to help you succeed and give you the tools. But you found out taking a step back, like it's such a quality of person that goes to Haverford that they were willing to take on that responsibility, but right. Let them be, you know, let them figure it out on their own with some guidance rather than feel pressured just to please. And I'm, I'm also such a hard self-critic on myself that I would evaluate the, my success based on who would come to a given training session. And I wouldn't think long-term. I, I wouldn't uh, realize that, okay, if I miss this one session, but Corey's understanding and he's giving me, uh, he's discussing how I can frame my situation moving forward, then I'm going to be more uh, accountable to myself in the future and, and uh, be more consistent in the future. So I, I wouldn't think long-term. I would think very short-term at that time. Um, and, and now I'm more evaluated on the, the just the experience that the athletes are having. And it's so all-encompassing that I had these blinders on before. And, and hopefully those blinders are starting to come off and I have gained more perspective. Interesting, too, you were able to set up where you were able to, by yourself and with an assistant or an intern, this entire evaluation process at the beginning of the season to get all to evaluate all 500 athletes and put them in these, these columns and to make sure they maintain, they receive the most effective training program. Can you talk about how you implemented these systems to personalize the workouts as best you can within each sport? Certainly. Uh, task. Yeah. And it obviously went through a few iterations and who knows how much it actually helped their physical performance Hard, hard, if not impossible, to really tell just because we had so many limitations on what we could actually test. But in essence, the, the there was two processes that we had. One was the movement assessment that you're, you're referring to. And two was this kind of stoplight autonomous system for a given session. So the first uh, process, the movement screening, in essence, was based around a functional movement screen, very popular at the time, you know, 10 or so years ago. So we put everybody through it. It was a full screen at first for the first several iterations. And it kind of morphed to a kind of a remedial version where the more remedial version was just ankles, uh, active straight leg raise and the sh shoulder flexion. But again, at first it was a full seven step assessment and simply bucketed people based on what they needed. And, you know, we, this is a word that I didn't make up a phrase that I didn't make up. So somebody smarter than I did, was movement vitamins. So we categorized people and gave them certain movement vitamins. And at the time, we had physical cards. So in the front was their workout, like the four-week phase, Excel. And then the back was this list of movement uh, vitamins. And we had this closet area where we had these posters that we created. So at the beginning of the year, uh, with the, the incomers, the freshmen, we would take them through a five or six-week, what we call foundational program. We would teach them these movement vitamins. And then during their training sessions, uh, they would come in and they'd always start with their movement vitamins. So, so that's how we individualize the program. And then from there, they go into their team-specific programming. It was also unique at Haverford College that we had five open training sessions per day based around their class schedule. 
because there was no blocks of time where there, uh, there's no priority scheduling. And between four and seven at, at Haverford, they would practice. There was no classes at a time, so everybody would be practicing. So we would have to find training opportunities around that. And we shared the space with the, the general community. So it was a fitness center that everybody used. So during these five times throughout the day, any student athlete could come in. They didn't have to tell me. They come in. They just choose. So if they had three training sessions, I would suggest a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, for instance. Uh, but they might change to Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. So uh, they got into a groove. Long story short, there would be a, a diverse sector of student athletes coming in at any one of these times. They'd go in. They'd, at the time, they would roll out. They'd do their move vitamins, and they flow right to their warm-up and, and to their, their workout. So that gave them a lot of ownership. Okay, this is my program. I am more motivated because it is it is me, and I'm trying to work out what I need. So they enjoyed that. That created more buy-in. Uh, the second system was this red light, uh, red, yellow, green light system, where they would simply ask ask themselves a question. They were prompted uh, based on how their body and their mind uh, are right at this time. How ready are you for training? So a simple readiness question. And they'd rate themselves, oh, I'm, I'm ready, I'm a green, I'm, I'm in the middle, I'm yellow, or I'm not ready, I'm red. And based on that, they would their, their workout phases, usually a four-week phase, it was broken up into uh, green and yellow weeks. So every other week was a yellow or green. So we'd start off week one with the yellow, next week was green, next week yellow, next week green. And what that means is... In a green week, it was either high volume or high intensity, and yellow was the opposite. So as they're going through on day one, they would, based on how they feel, they would do either the yellow or the green week, and if they're red, they would stay home. They would not train. Mm-hmm. And the goal was to do all of the yellow and all of the green, but they chose the order in essence. So once you, for week one, if I'm a green, but it's prescribed as yellow – uh, you have the choice. Do I want to just stick with the progression or do I want to go ahead and do this? Cause I know next week I have a test and I might be yellow next week, but then if you're down to just yellows at the end, you have to do that. Or if you're down to just greens at the end, you should do that. Had to is in air quotes too. So that also worked well. So you had this individualized program macro level, my movement. You also mm-hmm. had the micro and the day in day out standpoint. How ready am I for training? So again, buy-in, individualization, system, uh, within this diverse, a lot of moving parts environment, uh, worked real well. Uh, and the, the kids bought into the, the, even the coaches bought in too. It was, it was different. It was engaging and, and it allowed me to, to get everything done that I needed to. Because that just creates that culture around at a D3 level, culture can be definitely be hard because athletics doesn't take priority like it does at a Division One level. So it can be challenging to build that culture. And it sounds like over the 12 years that you were there, like the call, it was just part of being an athlete at Haverford. Mm-hmm. You went in, you met with Corey, you got your program. This is how you ran the program. And I think success even to working with someone that was drafted to the major league level, major league baseball, right? Two, which is yeah, two players. Yep. Which is pretty impressive coming from a small school like Haverford and then getting some people drafted into the major leagues. So congratulations on that. Thank you. It was yeah. uh, not at all my doing. <laughs> yeah. I'll take some credit at least. Did, did anyway, it up. brings you to Penn, which I'm sure there's definitely some similarities, but also 
you know, some differences as well. How does, how have you been changed your program? Because now you're working at a division one level where there's a little bit higher of an expectation from a lot of the athletes and maybe even from you to make sure that you're providing results, keeping kids on the field, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's drastically different. So if you walked in, you wouldn't see any of what I just talked about. Yeah. Uh, you would, uh, First of all, we have 33 teams, 1,000 athletes, all using the same room. So it's the similarities are in the people. Uh, The student athletes think similarly as Haverford athletes. I would not say uh, that the expectations are any different. You would theoretically think that because it's Division I and we play against the Dukes of the world, uh, whereas at Haverford we're playing against the Franklin and Marshalls of the world. but at the same time, the student athletes still want to train, the student athletes still want to perform, and the student athletes still want to win. Um, mm. So that hasn't changed. They might be slightly taller and slightly faster and larger here. Similarly with the coaches, they want to win, so expectations are higher. What is different is the logistics, uh, the process, uh, the staff. Yeah. So some context. Uh, here at Penn, we have six strength and conditioning coaches at this time who oversee again all those 33 teams so we just divide up our responsibilities so currently i work with five teams i work with Mm -hmm. both lacrosse field hockey both golf and every other coach has their handful of teams and everybody does differently just like i provided autonomy to the student athletes at haverford i do so so now with the coaches so every coach is able to program provided you stick within the guidelines of number one, we have to provide a great experience for these student athletes. So their performance, their health, their mental health has to be a priority. Uh, Number two, we're going to use some frameworks, uh, certain data um, is going to be shared. So we all use team builder. We all now use conduct, which is an athlete management system. We all use push uh, velocity based training system. We used to use force plates. Uh, we might be going in a different route of force plates in the in the future. So, and we all share an environment. So we all have the same equipment, and we have to collaborate. Who's using what at a given time? But what we don't do is so we we won't do like Haverford. We won't have those times where athletes are sharing equipment, sharing space. Like, well, everybody's training in teams here. Might be some smaller groups, but you're still training with your teams. And there's pros and cons to that. It just it would be pretty hard to to organize this kind of free flowing Haverford structure here when you don't have to. I had to at Haverford. That was really my only option. Um, and then in terms of the individualization, I think it's more auto regulation here than those uh, buckets of movement pattern needs. We still do that, but I kind of went away from that being the priority. I went more to let's quote-unquote, manage load and see how we can increase availability uh, as best as possible through, through again, auto-regulation. So it uh, seems to be going well, Just so just a different route of creating buy-in. But again, haven't done it for as long. I learned so much at Haverford over the 12 years. I probably only done, it was 11 months before COVID hit where I started, and I was just learning so much then. And kind of this last year was sort of normal, but not really. Um, so hopefully next year I'll get there. So I don't think I've learned enough yet. Uh, there's going to be a lot more iterations to come. Well, that's yeah. You know, like you, you were hired just before COVID, and you're well within just learning and how they do things. And then COVID right. hits. How did that right. change, or how were you able to introduce yourselves to the athletes? Right, because I would assume the second semester had kind of just started, and they're trying to figure right. out if they're still playing their sports. 
you know, can they come to the gym to train? How did, how did you navigate that situation and then figure out way to continue to keep the athletes training and ready to play? Because at that time, nobody knew if they were going to have the season or not, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So COVID hit, remember specifically, we we're on spring break. Uh, we were, we had men's lacrosse was practicing on our field. I was out there watching for a little bit and we got an email in essence saying all activities are shut down. So that was it. We were like five games into the season. So I had fall semester, then I had half of the spring semester, and it comes to this abrupt stop. Now, you heard some rumbling and things were going on, but you didn't know it was going to hit us. And then the Ivy League basketball tournament, I remember, uh, canceled before some of the other March yeah. Madness tournaments, and everybody thought we were being a little too sensitive or, or whatnot conservative but obviously that wasn't the case and then everybody went home nobody knew what to do so uh we thought it'd be home for a few weeks and a few months and then it became like a year and a half there was no competition so right. obviously the rest of 2020 there was no competition going to the summer we didn't know what was happening for 2020 to 2021 uh, in essence we were virtual all of that fall semester obviously no competition going to the spring uh, there was decided no competition. Other Division One schools did as much as they could. Ivy League decided not to. And then the the same in the fall of that 2021, uh, kids were back, but we were masked. And we were in these small pods, uh, like 10-person pods. So it was remedial training. Before that, it was all virtual, and we had to do it through like these Zoom classes. So anybody on campus had to... Uh, be given the option of joining. We had to do it through our campus rec per NCAA rules because it was in the off season. That brought me back to the Haverford for a day. So I was comfortable with that. But I, so I was in our room, like again, normally uh, high energy room, hundreds of athletes. And it was myself yeah. with a iPad doing some yeah. whatever exercise for yeah. whatever 15 people decided to show up on, on Zoom that day. So it was <laughs> not what I signed up for, but nobody yeah. did. And then Ivy League continued to not hold competition through that spring semester. So we held out longer, we being the Ivy League, longer than any other Division One conference, mm-hmm. created some animosity within the school, within Ivy League athletes. So obviously that changes buy-in. And then we come back fall of 2021 and have a full season. That, that first semester, there were some ups and downs with COVID, and then spring was relatively normal. So it was good. But again, just I learned so much through experience that mm-hmm. – uh, I'm still learning these kids. And and then we went through iterations of different staff and like, how do we mesh as a staff? I get so much enjoyment out of sharing space and, and knowledge with uh, like-minded individuals on staff. Um, and that was inconsistent. So it was hard, uh, but I think I'm thriving on change because you learn so much through, through it. That's where you're just uncomfortable that you grow the most, right? That's right. How, how did you keep your athletes engaged? So they weren't competing for a year and a half. Right. Mm-hmm. How were you able to and I'm assuming like Zoom sessions, like you can only do so much body weight stuff because you have to program yeah. based. How did you keep those athletes engaged over that year and a half when they're just they're they're chomping at the bit to move some weight or enter a competition? Huge challenge. Yeah, I think the short answer is I didn't. Yeah. And I don't know if anybody could. Uh, here at Penn, it's it's certainly more siloed than at Haverford. It's team by team. It's person by person. Uh, everybody kind of approaches it differently. 
some coaches were really gung ho. We're going to have a season. We're going to have people back. Like, let's give this a go as much as we can. Other coaches were like, no, I'm going to be realistic. I don't think it's going to happen. Go away, travel, do what you need mm-hmm. to. So like whatever the coach uh, sends is the message, like I have to kind of be within that. So we did some things like the class that I taught you. We had like a, a Quaker challenge where we did points for doing different things. And that was it. It was okay. Uh, but everybody do was short term. So we got through it. Uh, we did the best we can. I feel bad for the kids that graduated during that time. And they ended yeah. up their last one or two years. I mean, that's, that's horrible. That's what I remember as a student athlete. So that's tough. That, that, that was the hard part. Absolutely. So what continues to, I guess, be like a huge, like your, your main motivation? Like, are you motivated by making change in these athletes' lives? Are you motivated just because you enjoy yourself? But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think I'm like, what's your main motivation at this point? Now you're 15 years in the field. Sometimes in any profession, it's hard to maintain motivation when you're that deep into a profession. I think I'm, motivated by my curiosity now more than anything. Mm-hmm. And I would say my curiosity has extended to the a systems thinking approach. So one of the things that I did during COVID was uh, at Penn, you have tuition remission benefits. So I started a master's program mm-hmm. in organizational dynamics. Uh, a few mm-hmm. people in our athletic department take it or have taken it. Uh, but it's uh, it's in the School of Professional Studies. A lot of people from different business sectors take it. A variety of classes on how teams and groups interact and manage change and their influence and persuasion and storytelling. And uh, again, anything that can, can shift uh, where a team and, and a group is going. And that has simply provided me a, a new level of perspective mm-hmm. that I've immensely enjoyed. So I'm now... Very interested in, and again, systems thinking, meaning how different components of any system interact to influence a result, whether it's a body, uh, an injury, you know, how, how to, what are the mechanisms of an injury, high level, low level, but where my interest is lying is more outside of you know, sport performance, which I'm, I am still interested. That's my day in and day out job, but more in systems thinking for the experience that we're providing, providing these athletes. How do my coaches interact with each other? How do, how do the teams interact with each other? How do we create uh, bridges between silos here at Penn? How do we get different coaches to interact with each other and, and interact with us? How can we use data to assist that and aid in conversations and aid in the storytelling? So that's where my curiosity and motivation lies at the time. I love that because that's kind of where I'm seeing my shift too, is now that we're in, we've worked ourselves up into these leadership positions and we're managing people. I think it's a valuable lesson for at this point, and you're, you're leading not just your thousand student athletes, but the coaches that are guiding them as well. And looking at other industry and looking at other disciplines to help you become a better leader and manager. I think that's a huge lesson for the up and coming strength coach or, or person, anybody guiding people. And I think you see some of that, like you mentioned, Nick Winkleman, Brett Bartholomew is another one who are strength coaches that kind of stepped out and went that direction. I think you're seeing they're making huge changes in the way that they're interacting and leading athletes because the grand scheme of things like, you're trying to influence the next generation to just be better humans and better people. Mm-hmm. And 
make change in the world. And I think that's, again, a great lesson to look outside of strength and conditioning. Like you can program, you can be the best program in the world, but if you're not able to convey that program or lead the people in the appropriate manner, it's not going to be as effective. Agreed. Yeah. I love that you're stepping outside. How much longer do you have to go in the program? So there's 12 courses. I'm completing uh, eight and nine this summer. Uh, so I have three more plus what's called a capstone, like a big paper at the end or a big project at the end. So yeah, in my head, my timeline, I'll, I'll graduate spring of 2024. I'm taking my time with it. Ah, I love it. Good stuff. Good. So now you're, you're starting, we're talking in July. So you're in the middle of the summer. What, what are the types of things that you're doing to get ready as the like preseason for you guys, I'm sure starts in a week or two, right? Mm-hmm. We're here at the end of July. What are some of the things, and are you working, you're working with football? So football, I don't specifically work with football, but our, our football head of football performance coach has probably has the group definitely has the group, uh, the largest group here over the summer. So all training here over the summer is voluntary. Yeah. Uh, most Penn students are doing internships, uh, usually off campus outside of Philadelphia, but the small sector stay here, especially fall sports. The largest group will, will be football. So he has 6 a.m. training before they go into their internships or their jobs or some are doing some summer courses. Uh, but there's so there's open hours here. We have open hours in the morning. We have open hours starting in the later afternoon, again, out on bookends of the workday. So I'm covering some of those open hours. I don't have many student athletes here, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm assisting, watching where needed. But again, more macro level systems thinking. So number one, we had some staff turnover, turnover, and still do. So kind of working through that process, want to uh, get the best people on the bus in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, number two is working through what we have available to help our coaches. So we're moving. We, we just started in March a relationship with Kinduct Athlete Management System. So ensuring that we have all the integrations ready to go. Uh, we have the process. Uh, not only do our coaches know how to to utilize it, how to get the most out of it, but our sport coaches. Mm-hmm. do as well I'm trying to maintain a lot of relationships with our, our sport coaches administration different committees will meet over the summer like on higher level stuff like student athlete experience type things that and and taking time away i think it's, it's something i encourage yeah. my staff to do is you know now is the time so take as much time as you can uh, decompress uh where, where possible so I, I try to spend as least the least amount of time here as i can while still getting everything done uh, i still love being here but you know i i see the value in, in being elsewhere mentally and physically. I, yeah, I don't disagree because everybody knows the grind of a strength and conditioning coach. It's early hours and late nights. And so I think you got to take a step back and take care of yourself. So you're recharged. So you can provide the best experience for your athletes. That's, that's true. And I know that's always been the case. And, and I always, and, and this is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. It's strength and conditioning coaches like to say that, that it's a grind. They take yeah. pride in that. I, I'm hoping that's not always the case. Like, you don't see many strength and conditioning coaches retire as a strength and conditioning coach uh, because it truly is a grind and you're on your feet a lot and you have those long days, like you said. But I don't know if that has to be the case. And if it does, then it's going to continue to be a young person's game. So uh, trying to change that, trying to draw boundaries for our staff uh, with our coaches and, and, and being more than the strength coach, so getting outside of the walls, being the performance coach, being the collaborator, being somebody that enhances the experience and the performance uh, globally, 
uh, how could we really help the department, not just how can we get these kids to, to lift more weights or, or be able to spot a bench press? So uh, I put a lot of thought into that. And again, aiding the perspective of our strength coaches as they go about their lives, too. Yeah, and I think that's a great macro view of how can you change the profession so there's not so much turnover. So you can create a, a staff that's with you for a while to really provide the best service for the athletes. And how can you make it a profession and not just a hobby because you like working out? Yeah, exactly I don't disagree. Right. Yeah. And from there, hopefully people, you know, whether it's the private sector or in the collegiate setting like you, like the administrators or the public start to see the value that we provide and then pay increases and it becomes, you know, this career option instead of people just viewing it as something I'm going to do when I'm young. And, and, and we need to drive that change. We need to establish the right relationships with administration, uh, professional relationships, personal relationships. So they see us again as more than just those people down there uh, that are doing that thing that they're familiar with, but don't really know. So how can we be a true asset across the department? Yeah. And you spoke on that or you, you touched on professionalism and I know that's important to you. It's, it's how do we maintain a professionalism both in front of the athletes and in front of the administration to, you know, sometimes just how you present yourself is, right. is going to garner that, that respect that says, Hey, you know what? We actually provide value. We're not just working out. We're, we're thinking so much deeper than just providing sets and reps. Yeah. So are we going to, to all coaches meetings? Are we going to different administrator meetings? Are we dressing the right way? Are we, sitting in the front of the room, are we asking questions, uh, thoughtful questions? Are we providing thoughtful perspective? Are we asking other colleagues out for a coffee for, for uh, lunch? Are we inviting other colleagues into workout with us and doing, and, and is that workout like an enjoyable experience? Mm -hmm. uh, so all of those things uh, combined go into that. It's actually very interesting. And, and you're speaking on the relationships there, but it, as a strength coach at a, at a college, you're actually spending, and tell me if I'm wrong, more time with the athletes than the actual sport-specific coaches are in many cases. In many cases, of, yes. Yeah, and, I, and I, I don't think that's always understood that you have some, – in some cases, you're spending more time, you're developing better – like more deep relationships maybe, and, and it's not always seen that way because you're just the guy that puts them through workouts. And in those relationships, there's no, uh, there's nothing riding on the relationships like their relationships are with the coaches. Like we yeah. do not dictate playing time. We are not the ones that recruited them. So we haven't made any promises. We, you know, we're just here to support them. And I think they understand that. And I think they appreciate that. And they confide in us through that relationship. So yeah, we, we certainly right. serve a, a unique role. I love that. Nice. So to end uh, all of these with fitness professionals through a final five rapid fire questions to give them a little bit of more insight into who you are as a person, Corey. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. All right. What's your walkout song? Uh, Hell's Bells. I missed it. I said Hell's Bells. Oh, I love it. That's a common one. That's I'm a great sure. one. First one that comes to mind. I think I could be a little bit more creative by a time. Absolutely. What's your favorite exercise? Uh, does sprinting count? Yeah, sprinting is great. Sprinting is sprinting. an underutilized, cheap exercise. No, I, I, I know Ken will like that answer, but he won't like seeing me sprint. So 
Don't watch. <laughs> if you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Uh, I love brownies or like a meal, like good sesame chicken. Okay. Going along those lines, do you have any guilty pleasures? <laughs> you just heard a couple. Uh, nothing super guilty. Uh, maybe a good wing night. Oh, I, I would agree with that. Are you going hot? No, uh, like a honey barbecue. I'm, okay. I'm weak with the, the, the temperature. That's fair. Berkeley, you've been in the Philly area long enough. What's your favorite thing that keeps you here? Uh the word everything comes to mind, meaning uh, it's in the middle of everything. So my parents are three and a half hours north. Uh, I have other relatives that are kind of the opposite way, about the same distance. You know, you have the beach, you have the mountains, uh, you have New York City, you have Washington, D.C. Uh, you have sports, you have culture, you have great food, uh, you have the colleges, the enormous amount of colleges. I've developed some great relationships with uh, colleagues and professionals now friends in those colleges in this area and people like yourself. Um, so I, I think a, just a little bit of everything. And, and we love my wife and, and family love living in the area. We were in South Philly recently moved uh, across to South Jersey. Just uh, there's a lot of great spots to live, a lot of great things to explore. I love thoughts before we close this out, Corey. Uh, you and I need to talk more. Uh, we keep we said that going yeah. into this. Uh, I know it's hard to do, but uh, I, I think why you started this because of the quality of the network here in Philadelphia is so important and it's so true. Just how, how can we be able to maintain this this labyrinth of, of connection? So looking yeah. forward to, that's to part, doing that, John. Yeah, and that's that's part of why I started this. It makes me get back on with you guys because life gets in the way as we have families and yeah. kids and you know professional careers like so this this has been a great people i don't connect agreed yeah if anybody wants to contact information you don't you want to share uh they can simple way is email um cwaltz at upenn.edu uh, but also i'm on instagram and twitter don't do a lot there but you can always connect there too okay I appreciate you, Corey. Thanks for doing what you do. And I'm sure your, your athletes are loving everything that you're doing. I hope so, John. This has been fun. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, hold on a second. Don't leave yet. This is your host, Dr. John Herding, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Fitness Philadelphia. If you did, I'm going to ask you to do three simple things. They take less than five minutes and they go such a long way. We really do appreciate it. Number one, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to it iTunes, Spotify, or whatever it may be. Number two, please leave us a favorable review. Number three, share it. Put it on social media, talk about it with your friends, send it in a text message, whatever you can do to share this episode because we put a lot of work into it and we want to make sure as many people are getting the value out of it as possible. And lastly, if you'd like to learn more, please go to precisionperformancept.com backslash fitnessphiladelphia. Thank you so much. This is Dr. John Herding. This is Fitness Philadelphia and have a great day.